Good morning, everyone. It is great to see everyone who's here. It is a good day. It's a good day to worship. It's a good day to study God's Word, and so I'm excited to lead our study this morning. And if you would like to study with me, we're going to open up to Genesis chapter 3, and we're going to kind of mull through uh, some of the beginning of Genesis and consider some themes. And the reason I'm doing this is because in our afternoon Sunday worship for a while now, we've been reading through the Old Testament and I've countless times just been wanting to say, wait, hold up, hold up, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. Because we've just ran and read over so much because we've covered so much ground. And I want to go back now and pick up some, of, uh, pick up some details where we studied in Genesis. And my title I've given it today is Something Lost and Where to Find It. And to, to uh, introduce this study, I'm going to focus on the Tower of Babel. But for the Tower of Babel to make sense, we have to go back to the garden. And we have to go back to when Adam and Eve were in the garden and what happened there. So uh, we're going to cover some ground this morning. I'm going to do my best to keep things moving because when you're doing a theme study uh, and you're tracking a lot of ground, it can go a little fast. So I apologize if that is the case. Let's get moving. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. So here the scene is set. God has created the world, as we read in chapters 1 and 2, and he created man and woman from man. It says now in chapter 3, verse 1, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of, the, of every tree of the garden? So we have the first temptation man has ever seen. In the world going on here. The serpent is, is trying to manipulate this woman. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Okay, so quickly getting into some themes. Satan has his way, and he starts off by, number one, trying to get Eve to reconsider and have confusion about something that was a very simple command. Has he really told you that you shouldn't eat of every tree of the garden? And, and Eve's response, the woman's response is good. She says, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. So there's plenty of trees for us to eat from. God hasn't said from every tree, but the fruit of the tree which is, which is in the midst of the garden. God has says, you shall not eat of it. So Eve clarifies, no, we can eat of all these trees, but there's one we can't eat. It's that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so Satan's goal we're already starting to see here is to have her take her eyes off of all the blessings and all of God's providence that God has designed to give her and to get her to focus on that one thing that God said, don't do that. Okay, so let's move on. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So Satan tries to undermine the consequences of sin. This is his second tactic. He says, you're not really going to die. And maybe he meant that literally, physically. She didn't die. But spiritually and for that eternal being perspective, the curse of sin is going to enter because of this and man will die. But not in the moment. He says, you're not really going to die. He's trying to undermine the consequences of sin. And for our own lives, Satan wants us to do that. He wants us to see things from a perspective like, it's not really that bad. For God knows that in the day you're, you eat of it, your eyes will be open. In my classroom, that is one of the things that, uh, it's not fear, but if a student starts to try to undermine your systems and your authority by saying, 
the teacher, don't worry about it, the teacher knows that when this happens, this is really what's going to happen. And it's not what he wants from you. So Satan is twisting and turning things in. He's undermining God's authority by saying things like, oh, God knows this is going to happen. And next, he overemphasizes the gratification of sin. He says, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. That's true. They're going to have an awareness of what's right and wrong. He's not lying to them, but it's not the whole truth. They're going to be like God in the sense that they're going to know good and evil, and God wants them to be at peace right now. He created a garden where there was no evil, and they're going to be introduced to it because of their own rebellion. So Satan has several tactics he's already using on them here, and I think he does the same thing to us. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. So we already see the, 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 the result of Satan's temptation. She takes it and, eat, and eats it. And my mind, when I was studying this, it just it, it's caught my attention. What about the other trees? Eve was made by Satan to look at the world she was in like this is all she could see. There was one tree. There was only one tree you need, and there's only one tree you want, and God doesn't want you to have it. He zoned her perspective on something that she wasn't supposed to have. And so she saw the world like this is this one tree, when in reality, this was a lush garden. God had given them everything they needed. He had given them all providence, providing for all the fruits that they would need to survive by and live by and be cared with and for. But Satan made her see this scene through this lens. There is one tree in the midst of a garden that he made her see. And for you and I today, the first lesson I take from this is we must choose joy and contentment in the field of trees God has blessed us with. There are things that Satan will try to get into your mind that make you see things through a terrible perspective. In reality, we are all cared for in many ways. If not, maybe in your own maybe physical life, maybe you don't see all the blessings there, look here. Look at everything here. Dwell on this, because God has given us a field of trees, a field of everything we need. We have to learn to find joy and contentment in the field of trees around us and not get locked in on that one that Satan is trying to get us focused on. So here's the five things. Satan undermines the simple understanding of what's right. He undermines the consequences of sin. He distracts her, and he undermines the authority of God by speaking on God's behalf. He utilizes half-truths, and he overemphasizes the gratification that sin will bring. Okay, quickly moving on. Uh, in this verse where the woman uh, made this mistake, we have the three things John will say. The lust of the flesh, the pride of life, and the lust of the eyes. She saw the tree was good for food. Her flesh wanted it. She saw that it was pleasant to the eyes, the lust of the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. This is from the beginning. John, 1 John, the letter, uh, the letter of 1 John writes, from a place of experience, from a place of seeing and living only in a world full of the fall and full of its, full of its consequences, says this in, in his letter, John the Elder says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, 
All that the flesh wants and all those desires of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. For all that the world has for ought to offer, he says in verse 16. In verse 17 he says, and the world is passing away. And the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. As we consider Eve's uh, and ultimately Adam's fall into sin. And as we consider our own battle with sin, remember that there is nothing. There is nothing sin has to offer us. It's passing away. All of it in its entirety. But Satan got her, got her and gets us to look at it in a different way like it's everything we could think about right in front of us. She goes on, it goes on to say, she also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Sin has a powerful corrupting influence on the people around us. You have influence. Careful where you use it. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. So this is really what I want to start to emphasize. This is going to make the Tower of Babel um, kind of make more sense. Verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened. Like the devil said what happened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. The first theme we see, this is the first sin. This is man's first attempt, a man's first petty attempt to cover his sin and his shame that the fall brought him. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. This is almost a mockery to us in Bakersfield and a lot of the valley. The cool of the day. that The garden wasn't dissipated yet. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking through, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. This didn't happen before. Man in the garden dwelled in a place of security and openness and freeness and in vulnerability, but now they want to hide. And this might not seem like a big deal, but this was not supposed to happen. This is going to be a, a sign of an inward longing and an inward pain that we are going to feel throughout human history. He desired to hide from God. Among the trees of the garden. So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I think this is the saddest line in the whole Bible. Everything from this point forward is going to be from a place of, of hope. It will. And the New Testament says we consider the Old Testament that through, the, that through patience and comfort of the scriptures we might have hope. We're going to get there this morning. But this is sad because it's the reversal it's when everything was good. It's when man ultimately had peace with God and he felt good. He was at peace and joyful and secure and welcome and he had value in God's presence. And then in this line, everything crumbles. Everything falls apart. And you feel that today. I feel this weight today to hide and to have shame. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? You can see the transition. It's almost like when you talk to a child. Who taught you that word? Who taught you to say that when they pick something up they shouldn't have? But these aren't children. These are adults capable of reasoning and capable ultimately of sin. Verse 12, then the man said, the woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me. Got cut off down there. 
She gave me of the tree to eat. Man's response, he hides and he seeks to cover and he starts to blame. Shame leads to blame. We can already see the the terrible influence of sins on our hearts and on our disposition. This is a terrible thing that already starts to happen. The blame game. And so our story begins. In Genesis chapter 3, we lost something. We lost security. We lost peaceful vulnerability. We traded the true value that God had. We traded that. Adam and Eve traded that. So now the question is for the rest of the Bible, how will man fill it? And that's where we're going to move on to the flood. In, uh, the, in between chapters, between the Tower of Babel, the flood happens. The man's sin on the earth gets so bad that God has to f- clean it up and start fresh. So man causes a flood on the earth. And all the world, except for, except for uh, this small family, dies. And they're given a fresh start. There's a rainbow given for God's assurance that he will never flood the earth again. And from this small, I believe it's eight people, this small family, God restarts the world. And he gives them an important command. God tells them in verse, chapter 8, verse 15, that God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark. That's an important line. Go out. Don't stay there and let that be your hut forever and live in the boat. Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and every creeping thing that creeps on the ground, that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Verse nine, or chapter 9 goes on to say an extension of this. So God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth, on every bird of the air, on all that move on the earth, and on all the fish of the sea. They are given into your hand. There's an important connection between going, being fruitful and multiplying, and filling the earth. And and in that process, God will give. God will provide in the process of going and multiplying and fulfillment. But man's, that depends on man's reception to the call to go. This is a theme throughout the Bible. So they're told to go, to go, to multiply, and to fill the earth. And as we're going to see in the Tower of Babel, this is what they do the opposite of. And ultimately, God wants to do this. God wants them to do this in his name, in God's name, for God's glory, and by God's will. So let's see what happens. Genesis chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. It is hard to imagine this, but this is an etymology lesson for the Christian. God started everything with one language. I I can't fathom a world where everyone spoke the same language. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Then they, then they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had bricks for stone, and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the earth. So first off, reading that, what's the big deal? They want to build a city. They're going to make a tower. We're surrounded by these, right? What's the big deal? 
And so they want to stay put. They don't want to be scattered. You know, they probably want to be together as a family. They probably want to be together so that their power grows. What's the big deal? Number one, they wanted to build themselves a city. Number two, they wanted a tower whose top is in the heavens. Number three, they want to make a name for ourselves. And number four, they wanted to go against the command of God to go and fill and be fruitful and multiply. The building ourselves a city is a sign of permanence and security. They wanted to find a sense of permanence and security in themselves, for themselves. They wanted to build a tower to the heavens. They wanted to build something that was permanent and was meaningful, and they wanted to find meaning in their own power. And they wanted to make a name for themselves, for their glory, for their praise. And they wanted directly against God's command to fill the earth. God always pushes his followers to multiply, grow, and look outward from self. But man, sinful man, always looks inward to build for his security and glory. As we consider what makes us sin and what is kind of at the root of our sins, I think we get a lot of clues both from the garden and now from the Tower of Babel of what where sin comes from and what leads to our own sin in our own hearts. And this is part of it. God tells us that we need to have, uh, God tells us things like have a person over to show hospitality in 1 Peter chapter 5. But we tend to do the opposite. We tend to maybe sit at home and watch Netflix. We, we're told by God to go out of your way to take an interest in the well-being of others despite a difficult, dangerous road in Luke chapter 10. But we tend to turn a blind eye to the need for the easier, more comfortable road. God tells us to grow in knowledge and understanding of his will. But we tend to maybe scroll through social media or other tools of dissipation. It can be hobbies. It can be entertainment. It can be anything that just tries to fill a void in our minds that should be filled by something good. God tells us to cross barriers of torn or difficult relationships with love. We tend to maintain comfortable separation where we don't suffer embarrassment or hurt. Go and multiply is a call to go out from self, but we tend to do the opposite. To do everything, we're told to do everything without complaining in Philippians. To search for and promote positive messages even through challenging circumstances. But we tend to live with cynicism, to be cynical, to dwell on and repeat the obvious negatives. God tells us to reach for wholesome things to talk about, even if it's not that exciting or entertaining. To reach for those things, to go out and find those things. But we tend to gossip and circulate stories that get the biggest reaction. We tend to not want to go out from ourselves and find something greater God has to offer. To multiply and fill the earth. God tells us to draw near to him. And maybe that means carving out quiet time of prayer and meditation with our Lord. But we tend to fill our time with what we think needs to be done. To maintain the standards that we have arbitrarily set for our menial things in our lives. Do we carve out time? I know we have busy schedules, but do we carve out time to draw near to Him? We're told to evaluate our hearts and even consulting with outside sources of counsel and godly wisdom. To look out from ourselves 
But we resort to the way we've always thought. This is a theme started long ago, and God says go. God says go beyond wherever you are now. To he who thinks he stands, take heed lest he fall. Go, God says. Wherever you think you are now, you need to go from where you're standing. That was the call to the Old Testament uh, patriarchs. Now, I want to clarify. There is nothing wrong, and this is the interesting part. There is nothing wrong with their root desires. They wanted a city. And when we think city, think a place to belong. Think security. They wanted a tower. They wanted to do something that mattered, that would hold permanence and significance. And they wanted to build, they wanted a name. They wanted greatness. That's what a name is. They wanted to build greatness for themselves. There is nothing wrong with their core desires here. The problem we're going to see with them is that sin is often the result of seeking to find something or someone that you lost in God. Sin is the result of seeing a need in your life that, like we saw in the Garden of Eden, we lost some pretty core needs. We lost and have a pretty big gap in our life for some pretty important things. When we seek to find the filler for that void in places other than God, that's where I think their issue started. And on top of that, we try to build a tower ourselves to God. We try to replace that gap with something. And that's more specific in the fact that the, the phrase Babel, or when it's pronounced Babel, as I understand, means a tower to heaven or a gate to God. They tried, and we often try, to build a tower to God and replace a path to God to fulfill things that God is supposed to fulfill all the way back to the Eden loss where man tried to cover and fill his brokenness. And in the Eden garden, God was our home. God was the place of home for us. And fellowship with him is where we got our sense of belonging. For the tower, we got our significance from doing his will, tending the garden, follow, uh, serving him, and being sons and daughters of our king. That was our significance. That was our permanence in the garden. And for greatness, we had all the greatness we needed. It was supposed to be in God. It was in connection with the most high creator of the world, despite our humanity. And so first off, it makes sense that we want to belong to a city. We all need a place of belonging. That's why, now as we talk through some of this, some of this isn't necessarily wrong, but it shows a core need and a core searching we have. We want Acceptance from the right people, whether it's peers at school, maybe it's co-workers, or maybe people even in the church. We want praise from the right people. We want praise and acceptance from the right people because we want to belong. We want security. And that is kind of evidence in, in the insurance, insurance industry. It's a trillion-dollar in industry. And as I was looking at the, in the insurance industry, you can literally buy insurance for almost anything. If you go on a trip, now this is pretty evident during COVID. A lot of people had travel insurance because COVID canceled those. You can buy travel insurance. If there's a hurricane on your cruise, you can be insured for that. To insulate yourself from any risk you might have. You can buy wedding insurance. If all things collapse and maybe there is a, uh, a groomzilla or bridezilla, uh, you can have wedding insurance from those, uh, the payments for all those things you had. You can have insurance for your fantasy football league. 
You can have insurance for a body part. Uh, if you lose a hand, you, maybe your hand is valuable to you at work, you can insure that. You can have alien insurance. For $118 a year, you can have insurance so that if you or a family member gets abducted by an alien, you get $500,000. So it's not all that bad if you get abducted by an alien. If you can prove that you got eaten by an alien, that's $3 million. There's Halloween haunted house insurance. If there's an accident for the haunted house you're going to or are setting up, there's Halloween haunted house insurance. You can buy plant insurance. You could buy home theater insurance, identity theft insurance, spoiled food insurance from a refrigerator going out. You could buy insurance for your patio furniture. There's one for you, even if, you know, even if we laugh at one of those, like, that's ridiculous. There's one on that list for us or somewhere else for us. The reason is people want security. We want security. We don't want to feel that sense of loss that might come to us. We lost that sense of security, and we've been climbing and clambering to get it back since then. We want our lives to matter. That's why they built that tower. And maybe for us, that's why we have career stress. For young people, it is a huge thing to try to pick your career. Because we want to do something that matters. For older people, maybe you have a crisis feeling like you haven't done something that matters. Maybe that's why, I've never had one, and I, so I can't speak on behalf of this. Maybe that's where midlife crises come in. Where people realize they are missing significance, and they're about halfway through, and what do I do with the rest of this life? We want to have meaningful accomplishments or work. The whole thing with our generation, I think it's a good thing. Employers are saying they all want to make a difference. They all want to do have an impact. And they're kind of annoyed with that because it's like, just do your job. But that comes from a good core desire to have a valuable life. We want our lives to matter. We want to be connected to greatness. That's why whenever someone, whenever someone starts to say, you know who I met this weekend? That's why there's 10 people around them telling them, you know who I met 10 years ago and 5 years ago? That's a good feeling to be connected to greatness. I met so-and-so. They signed my ball or my shirt or my arm. That's why we take pictures with someone who's famous because we want to be associated with greatness. There's nothing wrong with the feeling of belonging, security, and greatness. It is all about where we ultimately look for it. And ultimately, we're not going to be fulfilled unless we find it in the right place. And I think we have this longing inside of us. I felt it at a young age in the security of my parents, in the security of my home. There's a reason that you have a powerful feeling about where you are. I guess I shouldn't speak for everyone. At least I have a powerful feeling of love and longing for my home. It's a place of security. It's a place of original belonging and ultimate for when you're little, it's a sense of ultimate security. And that's why we fear it so greatly when you're a child of losing it. That thought of, you know, that every little kid has run through their head of, you know, what if my parents were to die? There's a reason that's a terrible gap or that's a terrible feeling to think about. The loss of security. We have a longing maybe later on to meet a future spouse and the relationship that we'll share. And that is a real deep longing. And sometimes maybe in worship, if you're sitting here and you're singing praises, there's just something that you're longing for beyond this. Even when you're fulfilling the desires in a good way, it's just not quite enough. We're not quite there yet. 
And I feel it especially when I stand on the edge of the ocean and you're looking out at that vast openness. There's almost a yearning and a longing for something greater. Now, God provides for our needs, and that's good, and to have them in their proper place. But remember that even in their proper place, we're still going to have that longing inside of us. One man said, if I have a yearning that cannot be satisfied by any earthly thing, there is only one logical conclusion. I was made for a world that is not this one. That's the only logical conclusion. Another man said, the books are the music in which we thought the beauty was located. So in life, we're going to see things that are beautiful, and we're going to see little glimpses of beauty or pure goodness and enjoyment. He said, wherever that was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, maybe childhood, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb or voiceless idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Another person said, fathers and mothers, husbands, wives, children, or friends, all these good things, they are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. The level one of this concept is we need to be careful not to fill the needs we have outside of God's prescribed order. And level two is God's provisions have some way of satisfying our needs as humans. And they have a wonderful, wonderful place in our life. But we must remember who the ultimate source of our longings is. Genesis 11 verse 5, moving on. But the Lord came down. So he sees the city, he sees the tower which the sons of men have built, and it says that he came down. That's derogatory, that's derogatory language. Basically, like, got to go down and see what all these little gerbils are about down here. He comes down to this tower that was supposed to reach all the way up to the heavens. And the Lord said, indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do. Now nothing they propose to do will be withheld from them. I believe this is, maybe from a practical standpoint, they could do a lot of stuff with this one mind and power. And think about it for a minute. If people back then lived hundreds of years, we think sometimes science talks about them like they're cavemen or undeveloped. If you lived for a couple hundred years, maybe they were smarter than us. Their technology might not be all there, but if you live for hundreds of years, you can develop systems and, and teach it to the next generation for a lot longer. Whatever the case is, I believe also nothing they propose to do in a sinful way will be, withhold, with, will be withheld from them. And this is the second important point I want to make. That sin's root is by my will, in my strength, and for my glory. When Jesus tries to revolutionize and fix the minds of his people in the New Testament, he teaches them in Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, that Christ's likeness begins in the heart. It all starts there. In James chapter 4, verse 2, it says, You lust and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and you war. Why? You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask and you do not receive 
Because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Sin seeks for my will, for my name, and by my strength. Satan's anthem in Isaiah chapter 13, when his condemnation is sent down, it's written, You have said in your heart, speaking of Satan, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Sin's will is by my will, in my strength, for my glory. And so this is a good time for a pride check. How is your heart? How is my heart? When Jesus was talking, he said he saw two men in the temple... One said, God, I thank you that I'm not like these others. And he went his way, a right, he, you know, he was supposed to be a righteous man. And another man came through and he beat his breast and saw God be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus said, that's the man that went away justified. That's the man he wants to see. How is your heart? Where do you operate your life? One of the quickest ways to tell if you're prideful is if another person's pride bothers you, one man said, because pride is by nature always in competition with others. Jealousy is an obvious characteristic of pride. How is my heart? What am I living for? Is it God's will, God's strength, and God's glory? Verse 7, come, they said, let her... Uh, God said, come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language that they may not be under, that they may not understand one another's speech. So this is where all of the, the world's languages get started. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of all the earth and they ceased building the city. Therefore it is called Babel. So this is a play on words. Babel is gate to God, but the word Babel, if you move the accents, means confusion. This, therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over all the face of the earth. The third and kind of the final lesson here is sin leaves rotting towers of disappointment. It's interesting. I would think God would have just absolutely flattened that, that tower. But he didn't. He let it stand. Now, is that judgment? Or is it mercy? I think it's both. God's judgment would come down and intervene when it says they're going to do whatever they set their mind to. I have to stop this. That's judgment because he pronounces wrong on what they're doing and stops it. But it's also mercy. It's mercy because God came down and rerouted them so they could restart and reset their minds away from this task. And maybe this tower could stand as a reminder a constant reminder of their failures and their attempts to live for their will, for their name, and for their glory. What's so awesome is after this story, God disbands them. They are spread over all the earth, and now we have different languages. We have people absolutely spread across the earth. God begins to make his own tower. He, he stops the building of a tower of man, and starts to begin his own tower through a man named Abram. And God tells Abram, I'll give you a home. 
It'll be better and more permanent than any home a man can build. I'll give you significance, Abram. Greater than any tower, you'll have a role in blessing the world for generations to come. I'll make your name great, Abram. I'll tie the greatness of your name to my name. That is how God should fill these voids in our life. There's a pattern. And as we read further on toward the end of the Bible, in Revelation, in chapter 7, verse 9, we read this, After I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. It was a terrible sight. When man was confused and separated, and all their languages were jumbled. But in Revelation, we see a picture of all these people from tribes and languages crying out with a loud voice together in unity. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. It is a heavenly reversal of the Babel story that confused and separated so many people. And we even get a glimpse of this in the book of Acts. On the day of Pentecost, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. We should see a direct reversal here of the Tower of Babel. When man was trying to build his tower, it got crushed by the dispersion of languages. When God comes down to earth to build his kingdom and his tower, on the day of Pentecost, when it's set up, all people hear in their own language. It's a reversal of the Tower of Babel when God builds his tower and his kingdom. And so my question for you, this tower is being built. Regardless, what tower are you building? Are you doing his will or your own will? Do you see what you have as belonging to God or to yourself? Are you building your kingdom or living out his mission? Are you involved in the church? There's no way we can be a part of God's mission, especially when we see that church began and started on the day of Pentecost. You can't serve God's plan without being a part of building his tower. His mission on, the, on earth is to build a kingdom for eternity. Not an earthly kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. Are you directing all praise back to God, or are you concerned with keeping it on you? When I start to have a, maybe I, when I wake up at the beginning of my day, I go out to work. Sometimes I feel that exhaustion, and I feel that, you know, that, what that feeling is that just kind of like drags you down. And what I remember, when I tell myself, I have to live today for God's glory, okay? The pressure is off of me. Now I'm living for God's glory. I have a purpose. I relinquish pressure. And I direct my efforts toward God. Toward giving Him the glory in whatever I do. That if I'm a worker, that I work so that God will be glorified. So that I will serve my master, my employer, or my, even my students. Like I'm serving Christ. <clears throat> Maybe God crushed one of your towers. Or stopped the building of your tower and you... Have a tower of disappointment. Don't look at that like a bad thing. That is God's mercy. Mercy comes through judgment sometimes. This, that we will be rerouted from our own ways to serve him. God wants to show us that sin ultimately disappoints in all the ways it tries to fill us. In all the ways we try to be filled by it. He wants us to know that all fulfillment, all satisfaction... And all things good are found in him. Today, if you haven't started that walk, if you are searching for that, you're in the right place. Not because we are special, 
but because we have a special word and a special direction and a special purpose to serve God the way He's prescribed. We're told that if we hear God's word that produces belief and faith in Him. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, repent of our past life and change from building for my will, for my name, for my glory. And we can be refocused and redirected on a path that will follow God. We can be baptized for the remission of our sins like they were when the early church was set up. And we can be added to the church. If you started this walk and you need help, you need guidance to get back on the right track. This is a family. This is a place where God has given us to find a sense of belonging, even though it's not complete and perfect here yet. God wants us to find that here. And so we can provide uh, strength for you as a congregation, prayer, whatever you need, while we stand and while we sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.